Let's humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Grateful Eternal Father, we come before you as we continue on observing the commanded Moedim. And this one, the grand finale of the year, we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that those who have come out are receiving a special blessing of this time. They've recognized your command. They've come out in obedience. We ask for your blessings on them for doing that, that they might be a witness to many more, that we all might come here and observe and learn and strive better to be followers of you. We ask also that you would, at this time, restrain the activities of the adversary who is who is causing a little bit of problem, that the people who are suffering at this time would be made well again, so that we can all rejoice in your feast together, that your set-apart people can then be together again as we strive to follow in that narrow way. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll do that. We pray also that you'll bless the rest of this feast, this day, May the words we speak be yours and the fellowship we enjoy also be from the Holy Spirit. This prayer and petition now we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. You know, the feast is many things. And we, uh, we certainly want to follow in every way that Yahweh tells us to. One thing we don't tolerate here, and that's a long face sad face we're told and I just happened to look it up and didn't it didn't dawn on me there's at least a half dozen times Yahweh said you shall rejoice at his feast Deuteronomy 12 and 14 and 16 16 14 says and you shall rejoice in your feast you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within your gates. At the end of 15, he says, Elohim shall bless you in all your increase and in all your works of your hands. Therefore, you shall surely rejoice. So we want to see happiness. And you know, it's, an, it's infectious. You know, when you smile to someone, they naturally will smile back. You have a long face, they're going to say, what's wrong with him? <laughs> you know, uh, did I say something wrong or did I do something wrong? So anyway, uh, we're all here to rejoice before Yahweh, and that's what we want to do. I don't mean to confuse you with this crazy title I came up with. You say, what Bible is he reading now? Well, you know, after years of study, many think they know the Bible, but what Bible do they know? Take expressions so common that we take them at face value and don't even consider what's behind them. For instance... The term devil's advocate, where did that come from? A little research, and it said it came from the Roman Catholic Church when deciding who should be sainted, a devil's advocate is chosen to show the other side of the guy's character. Then they can decide. Do they want him as a saint? Of course, Yahweh doesn't do any of that anyway, but uh, that's that's where that came from. How about dog days? Dog days of summer. It had nothing to do with dogs, we know that. It dates back to Roman times when it was believed that Sirius, the dog star, added its heat to the sun from July 3 to August 11, creating an exceptionally hot summer. Kind of applies, doesn't it? The Romans called the period Dies Canicularis or 
Days of the Dog. You know, once you understand things behind the scenes, it, it starts to make a lot more sense. That's what I want to talk about today. For proper understanding, we need to stop and look below the surface of Scripture. We need to look underneath the rocks. We need to examine what's subsurface to get the real view of what's going on, to find the gems that are hidden there. Sometimes what you find is very eye-opening. And for those who like to study the Bible, it's, it's invigorating. It's, it's, it's really uh, uplifting to do that, to find out things you didn't know and you want to share with others. Language and expressions in our Bibles can be quite intriguing when you understand them. One way to do this is to go back and look at the source languages, which is what we try to do in the RSB to give you the actual number that you can look up in the back to Strong's Dictionary and find out what that means in the, the Hebrew and the Greek, as close as we can get to it, to get the precise meaning of a biblical passage. How often have we struggled with a, some passage, some verse, that we just can't understand it? It just doesn't make any sense. Until we learn what the writer was really intending to convey, you got to go below, you got to dig deeper. Through, And the Bible is so full of uh, these things, metaphor and idioms and synecdoche, one part standing for the whole, like the face that launched a thousand ships. Well, you know, the face just means the person, but that's part for the whole. Uh, other forms of expression. Uh, I, in my library for years, for decades, I had a book by E.W. Bullinger. He did the Companion Bible. And it's called All the Figures of Speech in the Bible. It's this thick. Whoa, this thick. Figures of speech in the Bible that unless you know what he's, you know, was really being conveyed, you miss oh, three quarters of what it's being taught. Well, the serious Bible student soon learns that he must go deeper to learn the significance of a teaching or practice. And only until you do that research do you really come to grips with the meaning. And it shows that Yahweh's word really is inspired. It's really a very magnificent book, complex book, and miraculous book, all of those things. It's constructed with multiple layers you got to dig through. Truths you missed the first time. And you know, we've all done it. We read a passage and say, okay, and then you come back a while later and look at it again. I didn't, oh, I didn't realize this. Or I didn't notice that when I read it because you're in a different frame of mind. You're in a different understanding. Maybe you've added to your knowledge so you can tie things together better. And so the Bible is a living book. An example that is especially on topic right now is Genesis 1.14. Elohim said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Seasons is moed. It means appointed times. It had nothing to do with the summer, winter, fall, and spring. That's not in there. The Anchor Bible, and I've got, I've got it in my library. It's like 25 volumes, and they really go into it. It says, quote, let them mark the fixed times. Continuing on, the sun and the moon cannot be said to determine the seasons proper. Seasons is not in the Hebrew in connection with the feast. It is translated in other versions, 
religious festivals. This is in G.O.D.'s word translation. Special days in the contemporary English version. Special meetings in the easy-to-read version. I don't know. I've never seen an easy-to-read version. I've seen simpler ones, you know, like the Living Bible, and you've probably all seen it too. NIV is a lot easier to read, but it's not a a word-for-word. It's a, you know, kind of a, a gloss. But uh, we know Yahweh established a Sabbath and seven annual feasts at creation, long before there were any Jews. So ignore that argument. Oh, those are Jewish. Those are Old Testament. This was long before all that came to be. Yahweh established it. So it's absurd to say they're, they're Jewish holidays. The sun marks off the days and the count to each feast. The moon marks off the months in that count, but the sun doesn't establish the first month in Yahweh's calendar. This is where barley does, and that is the meaning of Abib. Well, anyhow, many hidden gems are located away in many passages of the scriptures that you miss the first time. It's, it's almost like they're in a different, different color. You know, uh, the text all of a sudden changes into invisible ink and you miss it. But just as Israel, uh, archaeological digs are discovering more and more fascinating things, uh, which we seekers of the Bible spend a lot of time searching for and, and looking for to answer more clues and more understanding of the scriptures. I asked the archaeologist when we were there, I said, how much of Israel has been excavated archaeologically wise? He said like 15%. 15%, that's hardly anything. That's been dug up. Of course, most of that would be around Jerusalem and the major cities, but we also, on, you know, we were on our little journey there and came across Magdala. You heard of Mary Magdalene. That's where she was from. That's where that name comes from. They just discovered it not many years ago. So the Bible is constantly being proven. Joshua 8.56 has puzzled many. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, you are not yet 50 years old. They're talking, of course, to Joshua. And you've seen Abraham? Yahshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And that just, they went ballistic. Why would his simple statement regarding his preexistence be a reason to stone him? You know, it's a little bit over the top. Well, it goes deeper when you understand what he was actually saying. Exodus 3.14, I am that I am is Yahweh's name. That's the definition in the Hebrew or I will be what I will be. It's the verb of existence. So when he says, I am that I am, he's equating himself with Yahweh himself. And that they couldn't take. <laughs> you know, and I can, in a way, I can see it. You know, he's just a man. How could he be, you know? And uh, so they, they wanted to stone him because he equated himself intimately with Yahweh's name. But it was a clear play on meaning of the sacred name, which they considered blasphemous anyway. See, that's something that you can gloss over if you don't understand Yahweh's name, you don't understand the Hebrew, it just, uh, you, you miss it. And I think that's part of the problem today. We try to reach people with the truth, they, they just miss it. They don't have the depth of understanding yet to f- pick up on these things. They don't know. So we got to teach. Once you fill in the gaps, things really start to light up. Most don't look 
that far down below the surface, however, because their understanding and beliefs don't go subsurface. It's all a birdbath faith for them, you know, about an inch deep. The Bible, as with many cities like Jerusalem, is built on one layer after another. Jerusalem was conquered, resettled, conquered, you know, destroyed, conquered, another city built on top, conquered. This goes on for like, I don't know how many times, 15, 20 times maybe. So it's built on layers. Well, that's how the Bible is. It's, it's built on many different kinds of layers. You've got historical layers. You've got language layers, which we all know, all the different languages that have been uh, uh, written in and come from and translated into. You've got social custom layers that you've got to figure out. You've got archaeological layers. You've got types and metaphors and analogies that all built into this complex book called the Scriptures. And Leviticus 24.10 is a man who blasphemed with a curse. Now, this means more than he used Yahweh's name in profanity. It goes a lot worse than that. This fella blasphemed Yahweh through an occultic rite of condemnation when you really understand what was going on back then. The entire assembly was set to stone him because of what he did. This biblical principle of justice is, you know, is, is another thing that's been lost in our culture. And it's wreaking havoc in our society. You know, it once was in our neighborhoods that a strong sense of community kind of kept everything cohesive. Everybody had a, a natural sense of you don't do stuff like that, you know. A lot of that's disappearing now. You, you, you do whatever you want. It doesn't matter who you hurt, uh, you know, and, and what you destroy. That's, that's what's becoming our culture now because the next generation is not brought up in the nurture and fear of Yahweh. I remember uh, if you were in a store and you saw somebody shoplift, you know, you witnessed it, you'd, you'd bring it to, you know, attention to somebody. Now it's ignore it. Well, the result is that uh, uh, I know one brother says rules or laws aren't, aren't obeyed unless they're enforced. So that's the problem we have today. But anyway, you, uh, you did call to task, even if they're complete strangers, when somebody did something wrong. And it would help keep, you know, in the future, people from doing wrong things. It would make people think twice about misbehaving because they could get busted at any time by anyone. So children once had respect for adult authority, and that's going too. You know, it used to be in... Uh, uh, a child would meet an adult, adults say hi, the children would respond. Now the children just looks at you. The child just looks at you, picks up his device and goes forward. Uh, th- that's gone too in many respects. Well, anyway, um, we're going to have that authority reinstituted, reintroduced, if you will, when Yahshua sets up his kingdom. You won't be playing around with Yahshua. You do something wrong and you're going you're to reap the instant results. In biblical times, each member of the community was to accept responsibility for the well-being of that community. And if that practice were still enforced today, we'd have a lot safer, a lot better, a lot happier society. You wouldn't have to keep looking over your shoulder all the time. Well, let me back on topic. Some of the most revealing discoveries are the types and antitypes in Scripture. You know, the Bible is complex and, and nothing short of 
a miraculous, inspired, when we see so many precise parallels in Scripture and striking similarities between parts, between people, living centuries apart, we can only marvel. This is an inspired book, and that's why it's held true thousands, thousands of years. Let's take a prophecy, for instance. You know, there's, there's several different types of prophecies in the scriptures. You've got literal prophecy, things that are just on their face very clear. You know, like uh, Micah 5 says that out of Bethlehem will come a ruler of Israel whose going forth has been from everlasting. Well, that can only be Yahshua. Who else has lived forever in the past? And he's going to rule, or I mean, he's going to come out of Bethlehem, which is where he was born, where he was raised. Then you have, that's literal prophecy, and we all can see that pretty clear. Then we have inscription prophecy, a kind of riddle where, where groups of Hebrew or Greek words have several meanings. Take a look at Methuselah. I've often found this guy fascinating. You know, I, I, I see him as the link uh, from Hebrew uh, into the, the uh, what, am I, what am I saying? He, he's the link that shows the extension of the Hebrew language from old to up to that time, up to the time of the flood. And so, because he lives so long. A kind of riddle he's got here uh, in his name. It's a combination of meth, which means death in Hebrew, kind of apical, isn't it? And then salah, which means sent. Make it a sentence, and you have, when he is dead, it shall be sent. What happened? A week after he died, they got the flood. A week after he died, Yahweh destroyed this earth virtually with a flood, and many died. Isn't that fascinating? That's inscription uh, prophecy. Then we have symbolic prophecy, where the prophecy was to act a certain way, and we we apply the metaphors. Like Jeremiah acting, I got a kick out of reading about him. You know, he's always making things to to express, uh, symbolize a prophecy. You know, build a little house and then tear it down, and that means something, you know. Well, there's 10 different object lessons in, in Jeremiah used to prophesy what was to come on Judah. Broken clay pots, you know, that's destruction. Boiling pot tilting away from the north, meaning the enemy's going to come down from the north. Things like that. That's symbolic prophecy. Um, a scroll sunk in the river, meaning Babylon was going to be destroyed and not come back. So that's symbolic prophecy. Then you have uh, typological prophecy, a prophecy fulfilled twice at different times in type. You know, most prophecy I find in the scriptures is dual. I would, you know, it seemed like like 75% is again. We'll see it again later on. We see it from old to new. Uh, but anyway, a prophecy fulfilled twice at different times with the same circumstances, like Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 11 being the anti-Messiah, standing in the holy place, you know. I mean, he's a perfect symbol of, the perfect forerunner of the anti-Messiah, standing in the holy place. I had a man say one time, I don't believe the temple's going to be rebuilt. Well, how do you explain this? He's standing in the holy place. Where'd that come from? 
They're in a holy place now. But if they rebuild the temple or, you know, just put a tent out there or something. And, and, you know, people say, well, you make such a big deal about the Temple Mount not being the real temple. Well, you know, it is so clear. Uh, We almost have, like, literal prophecy in that. It says he will establish his, his, his kingship in the city of David. The city of David is down here. The Temple Mount is up here. And there's so many different proofs, evidence, whatever you want to call it, that this is not the Temple Mount. But people get upset when we, we tell them that. But look how it's going to impact prophecy. When you see them down here in the city of David setting up either a temple or you know, a tent or something, and it's going to take some education because they're all in traditional ideas that this is the, you know, I mean, for, for hundreds of years, you know, they're, they're praying to these, this block wall, you know, sticking their prayers in there because they don't know what they're doing. They think that's part of the, the leftover temple. When Yahshua said there's not one stone be left upon another, and when Titus destroyed it, he plowed it. It looked like, it looked like a field like across the road over here. You know, like a farmer plowing his field. Nothing left. How could this be? We got this big wall up here, and this is part of the temple. I don't think so. There's other, oh, so many other proofs, too. Uh, but anyway, that's in our video. And uh, by the way, we've had a million views on that. And we've had the Discovery Channel call us. We've had the, uh, what's the other one? Uh, History Channel call us. Want to know more about it? Travel Channel? Yeah, so... Uh, it's something, it's cutting edge is what it is. And uh, now we didn't come up with this on our own. We did, uh, there's a book out that uh, uh, this guy wrote, and he did some fascinating research, and we've learned a lot of things about it. But anyway, um, it's, it's really fascinating. But like I said, it's important to know. Well, you ask the archaeologist, what do you think? Is that the Temple Mount? Well, you know how they, they fudge. Yeah, well, yeah, well that's, that's kind of what some people are saying, but he won't commit himself because that's his job. They think he's a nut. He'll never archaeology again if he, you know, if, uh, if he can't do his work. It's kind of like false teachings, you know. Uh, Yahshua came down upon the leaders, minister, the uh, religious leaders, because they were the ones at fault, bringing all these false things on, and they don't want to change. That's their job, too, you know. Start preaching Yahweh's name. There goes half the congregation. Start preaching the Sabbath. There goes the other half. So they just ignore it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know it, but uh, we're not going to do anything about it. One of the most amazing is how many biblical lives paralleled and symbolized Yahshua's life. There's so many. I, I, I was going to go through a few, but it's going to take too long. But the sheer number is a miracle in itself, the solid proof of the inspiration of Yahweh's word. Let's just take one, Isaac, as a type of Yahshua. Isaac and Yahshua were both children of promise, the Bible says, Genesis 15.4 and Isaiah 7.14. I'm not going to look these up, but uh, you can maybe later. The birth of both was pre-announced. Isaac in Genesis 18.10, Luke, of course, the angel, announced his birth. Both were named before their birth. Isaac in Genesis 17, 19, and Joshua in Luke 1, 31. The birth of both was contrary to nature. Think about it. Sarah was barren. Joshua was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary was a virgin. Both are called 
and only son. Genesis 22, 2. You know, Abraham, only that was his only son. He was going to have to sacrifice. What did Yahweh say? That's my only son. I mean, he sent his only son to deliver us from our sins. Both were mocked and persecuted by their own kindred. Genesis 21, 9 and 10. Galatians 4, 28, 20 to 29. And Matthew 27, 29. Both Isaac, I should say neither Isaac nor Yahshua, had broken the law. But they both had to or almost die, at least in Isaac's case, for nothing. He was a substitute sacrifice, is what he was. Of course, Yahshua is also our substitute sacrifice, isn't he? He didn't break the law either. He fulfilled the law. As Isaac carried the wood on his back, Yahshua carried the death stake to his death. As Isaac went willingly to be sacrificed, so Yahshua went willingly, you know. He, he was like a sheep. He just went to the slaughter. As Isaac uh, was given up for the purpose of a uh, sacrifice, so was Yahshua. And each was for, apparently forsaken by his father. I mean, Abraham was going to slay him. Yahshua said, why have you forsaken me to his father? I mean, it goes on and on. You can find these types all over the place. Another big one is David. David, a well-known type of Yahshua. Well, his, the parallels there are everywhere, especially in his position as king over Israel. We see one right there. In the Hebrew mind, the Messiah was known as the son of David, and this is firmly established in the, uh, in the uh, New Testament scriptures in various passages. In fact, the last description of Yahshua in the Bible Revelation 22:16, Yahshua himself declares that he is the descendant of David. You got David and Goliath, big old giant enemy. The Philistines, they had this deal, uh, kind of an economy of uh, rivals, you could say, where you send your best guy against our best guy. Whoever wins, we will follow you. So... Israel, you know, they were looking for a guy to face this almost 10-foot-tall guy, and everybody was chicken out. But along comes David. He says, I'll face him. He had the faith to do it. And uh, what did Yahshua do? He had to face Hasatan, a bigger rival than Goliath, and he said, I'll do it. He went up in the mountain, you know, right after his baptism, and told him three times, get Behind me, you know, it is written, it is written, it is written. If you got a problem with someone's arguing a doctrine, all you got to do is go to the scriptures. How can they argue that? You know, how can they say, you know, oh, well, I don't, I don't believe the Bible. Well, then we have nothing in common. You know, have a good one. Uh, there's no point in continuing on. Like the one guy who was an atheist, I talked to him for 15 minutes before he told me he was an atheist. But he knew all the, he knew all the scriptures. It was amazing how much he knew. I guess he figured out, I have to answer all these if I'm going to keep my atheism. So that's what he did, you know. So uh, then I had to say, well, we have no more in common. Uh, I had approached, a minister approached us one time at a seminary, seminary, a seminar. And uh, he said, uh, I told him, you know, we were talking about the keeping the law and so forth. Well, what did Paul say? You know, your champion. What did your Paul say? Uh, And... uh, I said, he even said, I must by all means keep this feast. No, it didn't. 
doesn't say that, you know. Well, Acts 18.21 does say that. Um, now, it doesn't say it in all the Greek manuscripts. I think that's what he was talking about. But it is in the Aramaic. It is in, uh, you know, the, the ancient Hebrew. So, hey, it's there. And why would they even make that up? Why would they, who would come along and stick that in the scriptures when these people, these translators didn't believe in the, uh, you know, in that? They, didn't, they weren't thinking that uh, Paul said that because they followed Paul. And if they did, they're contradicting themselves and all that. I mean, how would it ever, ever get in there if it wasn't in the original? That's what I'm saying. But anyway, uh, David, of course, is uh, a well-known type of Yahshua. And uh, when he had to face the adversary, he did it willingly, just as Yahshua did it willingly. Uh, So anyway, we see another picture reflected here where Yahshua is our representative in the greatest spiritual battle of all. Greatest spiritual battle in history. He faced Satan one-on-one after his 40 days of trial. If he won, we would be sharing in his victorious uh, effort. But if he lost, we would all become servants of our enemy forever. It was all the stakes. All the stakes. And people that reject Yahshua, I don't know what they stand on. Well, Paul in Romans puts it this way, for as through one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, Romans 5.19, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, Yahshua, the many will be made righteous. So the enemy loomed large, and all of Israel was paralyzed in fear. Goliath was ready to meet whatever representative Israel could throw at him, and one was sent. So we see David was sent by his father, Jesse, go down into the battle, basically to check on his brothers. How are they doing down there? You know, they're all kind of hunkered down in the, in the hills there, and Goliath comes boasting out, you know, and, and with a big sword, and uh, you know, taunting them for 40 days. Come on and fight me. And they're all, hoo-hoo. And likewise, when the appointed time had come, the father sent Joshua down into the struggle, into this earth, to fight the adversary, to look after his brethren. So we read that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. And, of course, uh, David was uh, rejected, basically, by his, his brothers. Eliab, in 1 Samuel 17, 28, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your negligence of your heart, for you are come down that you might see the battle. Oh, he didn't understand his brother, but his brother rejected him, basically. So what are you doing? There's sheep up there to take care of. Kind of like, you know, when Yahshua called his disciples, throwing nets out, catching fish. Yahshua said, come with me. Here, Dad, take the net. We're going. So he didn't hesitate. He went. Step out against the enemy because he had learned from experience and trials that he, when he fights lions, when he fights bears, when they come out against him, Yahweh was with him, so he had no fear. This guy can't be any worse than a bear. You know? So Yahshua also learned from the things he suffered. 
So he was ready for the big one. And as a man, he had to learn the cost of obedience in a world of gross disobedience to Yahweh's word. David was anointed by the Spirit, proclaimed king in Israel, but he wasn't king at that point. Through the prophet, of course, Samuel, Saul was still reigning. But do we not see him reigning eventually? Yes. Was Joshua king? He said, but for this cause I came. But he says, he wasn't king then. His kingdom was coming. Same parallel there. And even though Joshua is the true king, as David was in, in the word for Israel, and yet we don't see Joshua reigning, he is a king in exile, so to speak, but he will reign. And so David, of course, is called the prince who's going to reign in the millennium under Joshua. It goes on and on, but uh, most people come to the truth, don't realize these things, don't realize how complex and how much study the Bible really takes. They just throw it off. Go see my minister. He'll explain my faith for you. Uh, you know, it, when, when Yahweh says each one of us is going to answer for the things we do in this life, you can't say, uh, Reverend, would you come up here and, and answer for me? I mean, Yahweh's standing right here, Yahshua's. Would you please answer for me? Uh-uh. It says you'll be one-on-one. And, uh, of course, those in the first resurrection are already judged, or they wouldn't be in that first resurrection. So that's why we go through trials, because we're being judged now. We're being tested now. No wonder we got trials. Once we get past this, we're home free if we're faithful. And in the millennium, they're going to have help. I think they're going to have our help. Isaiah talks about that. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, nope, don't go that way. This is the way. Walk this way. You know, they'll have help. Where right now, we have the word, basically, our, uh, our help. But we have to get into the word. And most people come to the truth of Messiah for basically one of three reasons. If you look out into the panorama of those who come to understand the least effective is distress. They're having problems. They're having money problems. They're having health problems. Uh, trials and hardships come and go. And the person who seeks Yahweh simply to comfort themselves or to get through that, when those things are over, a lot of times they forget all about him. Look at Israel. They, had to, they saw all these miracles. They went through trials and, and all of that. They had to go through like the first four plagues on Egypt. But as soon as those were gone... We want to go back to Egypt. We remember the leeks and the melons, and why'd you bring us out here into this desert to die? You know? They didn't get it. We, sometimes we do the same way. When things are going well, we forget him, don't we? You really don't need him. At least the world thinks that way. But as soon as they have trials and troubles, oh, then they come, oh, would you pray for me? You know, I need help. And, and, well, you pray too, you know? This is your, your life too, you know? You pray. Get back into the word. So anyway, that's, that's the least probably effective of coming to Yahweh. Because when that is gone, then they kind of forget. Not always, but oftentimes. Discontent. That's a better reason, better way to come to Yahweh for many. To become a seeker of truth. Discontented people have at least seen that the world has nothing for them. They see there's no, there's no truth in it. There's no real love joy in the world they've seen the error and nominal beliefs 
And they know there is more to the Bible. Things don't add up. I read the Sabbath in my Bible. I even see it in the New Testament. And I read it and I see it and the world isn't doing it. So, you know, they, they, they're discontented with life. They're discontented with the way the Bible is taught. So they want to find out more. I read the, the seventh day and the world wants to go the first day of the week. Something's not adding up. Where can I find the true word? Same with the sacred name. His name is found 6,823 times in the manuscripts. Almost 7,000 times. How many more times does it take? Think about it. This is his name. He has it over and over and over, and you can see it in the Hebrew over and over and over. They still won't go with it. They prefer a pagan title. It just... And I understand it because that's tradition. We were locked into it too. When I first heard the name, that was very strange. Then I started realizing how important it is that this is his name. When I started looking, you know, doing some research and finding out it ain't Jehovah, he has a name that the scholars will even say it's his name, um, that the text will say is his name, because you can read Hebrew, you can see his Yodhewahe, the Masoretes. You know, when the vow pointed that, Um, name they were not trying to help you say Yahweh with their vowel points you know the vowel points of of Elohim and Adonai they were trying to move you away from the name when you saw those vowel points you were supposed to say Adonai that wasn't a help it was a hiding of the name so anyway uh, the Masoretes did a they, you know, they did preserve the Hebrew as much as they could, uh, the biblical Hebrew. And they came around, you know, they were in the, toward uh, nine, eight, nine hundred and later. Uh, language has changed in centuries. So, you know, we don't, we're not even sure that some of their pointing is accurate, but we, uh, it's sure very close, if not. And so uh, Yahweh preserved his name. He says he did through his, uh, his scribes. So we don't have to worry about that. The soundest reason for coming to Yahweh is a person who sees that he is a sinner heading for destruction. And he has a debt to Yahweh that he can never repay. So he can't leave. He can't leave the truth. He can't fall away because he follows the truth to the end. I listened the other day to a Bible answer guy on radio try to explain away Hebrews Chapter 6, 4 to 6, trying to convince the listener that once you are saved, you're always saved. That's a big one. You know, it's make, the, make, the, make the walk even easier. That you don't have to do anything because you're, you're in. You know, you got it made. You're all in. Even though the passage says the diametric opposite. It said if once you understand the truth, and I mean understand it, you know, you realize what it is, you've applied it, you, you, you know, you know beyond a shadow of doubt that it's true, then you turn your back on it. He said, there's no more sacrifice for sin because you're making a mockery of Yahshua's sacrifice. You know, you can't come and go like that either. And that's what we'd say about baptism. One faith, one hope, one baptism. There's not several. They're not many. There's one. You got to get it right. And so we tell them, we show them. In every example in, in the New Testament, in Acts, 
Baptism is done into Yahshua's name. Not a Trinitarian formula. We've disproved that in this feast already. Uh, there's only one way. You've got you to get that way and you've got to go with it. And I wouldn't be, you know, fooling around thinking, oh, well, someday I will. I've got to figure this out. You know, if you're convinced, as far as you know, that this is right, don't, don't back off. I remember a lady out in Kansas, her husband was real sick, and uh, he wanted to get baptized, and uh, every time we approached him, well, yeah, I'm not quite ready, but uh, I think I'm, I'll be ready. And then finally, when he really got sick on his deathbed, she called, and uh, nobody was there to baptize her, baptize him. You know, I don't know. What was the point? What was the point of holding it off? How much more do you need to know? I mean, we have literature on the proper baptism. We have literature on what it means. What's, why wait, you know? The, the disciples and Yahshua said, okay, follow me. Yeah, well, let's see, I got this big fish here. Can you just hold on a minute? I'll get him in. Or, uh, well, like he says, you know, I got people at home. I got people in my house. I got to go say goodbye to them first. I got somebody, I got to go to a funeral first. He said, if you put something before me, I can't use you. So, when he calls, we go. And common teaching is to pave the narrow way, make it wider, cover it with roses, make it easy. And Yasha says the opposite. It's a hard, difficult walk. But anything worthwhile is worth the effort. And imagine the eternal reward we get when we follow his ways. Well done, thou faithful servant. Enter into life everlasting. I think we all want to hear that. Well, um, back to David. David's ragtop group was unremarkable, yet he became their captain. He became their leader and turned ordinary men into awesome men of valor. He didn't need their abilities so much as he needed their commitment. Commitment. Same with Yahshua. He can use you in some capacity, but he needs your commitment. He needs you to come to him and say, I'm ready. I want to follow you. I don't know how much more. We were talking to an insurance guy one time, and he says, you know what? Your heart can stop at any moment. That's it. You're done. Your record of, of your life is now set in stone. You can't go back and change it. Are you willing to take that chance? Anytime. We could all die in an automobile accident. Get a, you know. Uh, but I think, and I also know that Yahweh takes care of his people too. And it seems that Yahweh's people have a longer lifespan than the average. I've noticed that. They'll be into their 90s. And uh, not always, but he promises three score and 10, which, of course, 70 years. But he says there's also longer for those who are faithful. But he doesn't choose, Yahshua doesn't choose the great people of this world, the eminent, the philosophers, the doctors, the, the lawyers, the Indian chiefs. You know, he, Yahweh chooses the heart. He goes after the heart because he knows that's what matters, the heart. He takes the weakest elements of this world and makes them supreme, even his name. Made up of the three weakest Hebrew alph uh, letters of the alphabet and produces the most powerful, glorious name on 
in the universe. He does that. Yahshua chose 12. Why didn't he choose 1,200? He chose 12. But he knew the heart. They were willing to go, except one. He blew it. So uh, you don't need a lot. You know, you just need, you need the faithful. Following both David and Yahshua meant associating with the unpopular. It meant trials. It meant hardships. I mean, David's running from post to post because Saul's throwing spears at him and stuff like that. Uh, Yet, once David came into his kingdom, it was all completely worth it because he led Israel as one of the few righteous kings. You know, all the 12 tribe kings of the north, uh, well, the 10 tribe kings of the north, we're bad. Every one of them. There's a good one there. One of them would kind of, eh, he was trying a little bit, but they were basically not faithful to Yahweh. And half the ones down in the lower uh, kingdoms, the two kingdoms, were, were, uh, were bad too. Israel, Benjamin. Uh, so bad rules supreme in our world. We've got to come out of that, which means you're going to create fiction. You're going to create opposition. You're going to create something you've got to battle against. That's just the way it is. I didn't make it that way. I didn't write the book. You didn't either. But that's our lot, and that's what we've got to do through this life, is to be faithful to Yahweh no matter what. So shall it be with Yahweh's own servants. He said, a book of remembrance will be written of the faithful among us as well. Read Malachi 3.16. Then they that feared Yahweh spoke often one to another, and Yahweh hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. Could that be? This has been broached before. You know, if you look at the book of Acts, it kind of ends abruptly. It just hangs there. There's no smooth closure to it. It's like there's more to come. There's more to come. And it could be that, you know, it's a, it's a record of Yahweh's people and the assembly and all the way through from start to finish maybe. Maybe we're going to be written in that book, a book of remembrance, because that's what Acts is, remembering how the assembly started and how it was taken from, uh, you know, the, uh, the Jews to the world to Paul and Peter and all these others. Who knows? Maybe that's it. That's it. I don't know. But we'll find out. One day, maybe. It doesn't have a formal conclusion, though, and it ends sharply. And it is the acts of the apostles. If we're faithful to him, it would be the acts of us, too, perhaps. When the king comes to earth, everyone who was faithful will be rewarded as well with a place of authority in the kingdom. Revelation 3.21 tells us that. He's got, a, he's got a reward waiting for you if you're faithful. And remember, we become the bride of Messiah, and the bride must make herself ready. You don't sit back and say, he did it all for me. I don't have to do anything. Revelation 19.7, the bride has to make herself ready. She has to be prepared. I'm going to close with Malachi 4. The day of judgment is certain to come, and it will be like a red-hot furnace with flames that burn up proud and sinful people, as though they were straw. This is a, a different version. But for you that honor my name, victory will shine like the sun with healing in its rays. Don't ever forget that the laws and teachings I gave my servant Moses on Mount Sinai. 
And that sums up why, we're here, why we are here at Tabernacles. We're not going to forget that statute that says keep the feasts of the seventh month. And all of them. But that's why we're here specifically today. It's a part of the teachings of Yahweh that he gave Moses on Sinai and that we must always honor. Let's read the prophecy of Malachi 4 and I'll close. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And that day that comes shall burn them up, says Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But you that fear my name, Notice how many times the name comes out? Always. People don't realize the significance and the importance. Those that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, says Yahweh of hosts. That's one of the reasons we don't cremate, because ashes is always in Scripture about bad people burning up and this says there'll be ashes under his feet remember you the law of Moses my servant which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with statutes and judgments verse 5 behold I will send you Elia the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh and he shall turn this is one of my favorite passages because it's so prophetic but I think it speaks to what we're doing now he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. This is, has to be a Hebrew idiom. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we today are turning back to the fathers, the truths that they knew. And they're looking forward to us as the children learning those truths and being faithful as they were. But he says in the end times they're going to go back to the truths of the fathers. That's why we call it restoration. We're restoring those truths that have been lost through 2,000 years. We're doing the best we can. We don't always have everything right, but if we are found wrong, we're going to change it, get it right. And just as they anticipated their children being faithful, we're holding back the curse of the planet, I believe, as long as we are faithful. A big part of the feast tabernacles is part of that faithfulness so it's wonderful that you're here wonderful that you recognize the importance of his feast it's great to see all the young people they're gonna they're gonna remember these things i remember my first feast 52 years ago and it made such an impression on me and believe me it was the wild wild west back then because they were working on it but they hadn't got it down yet i mean there are a lot of different doctrines floating around and all that but it was still Pray and learn in Yahweh's name made an impact. And that's something these kids are going to remember. They're building memories right now at the feast. So let's make it a pleasant, good time for them, a blessing for them, and for us as well, so that we one day can say that we did what we could as we, you were commanded us. We kept your feast. We didn't hold back. We said we're going through with it. Hey, Yahweh bless you.